Back in the 17th century, a French philosopher by the name of René Descartes uttered those words which have become famous around the world. He uttered the phrase in Latin, cogito ergo sum, which we know in the English as I think, therefore I am. Now it's interesting to consider how that phrase came into being and and why Descartes uh, pronounced it the way that he did. According to tradition, Descartes had been struggling with trying to find certainty for knowing things. He had already decided that he was to take a skeptical attitude and to doubt all the previous axioms and principles that previous philosophers had established. And according to tradition, on one day he went into an oven and spent the entire day in the oven in a search for certainty. If everything is to be doubted, where then is there any basis, any grounds upon which to construct at least an initial certain proposition? Well, at the end of the day, he crawled out of the oven and had his thoughts boiled down to what he believed was that certainty he was looking for. He concluded that the experience of doubting itself is certain. That he could begin with the reality that if he is able to doubt, it means he exists and his existence is then certain. And upon that basis of self-consciousness, he could then begin to construct a, a whole series of subsequent propositions. I think, therefore I am. Or even in other words, I doubt, therefore I am. And what Descartes emphasized was now that knowledge was going to be intimately attached with this concept of self-consciousness. And according to that motto, the Enlightenment then gathered its steam and Western civilization shows a lot of the effects. In fact, a 20th century Anglican Archbishop William Temple said that the day that Descartes crawled out of the oven was the worst day for European history. The day in which knowledge was attached to something as subjective and autonomous as self-consciousness. But Descartes wasn't the first one to think that way. In fact, it's been the bane of human existence from the very beginning of the fallen world to base thinking on autonomous reasoning, to use oneself as the standard and the starting point for trying to understand the world and to prescribe solutions to the problems that we face. It's something that all of us, especially in Western civilization, since the time of the Enlightenment, it's built into our flesh, we like to think autonomously. We like to assess the world around us according to the standard of our own self-consciousness. We like to prescribe the solutions according to an autonomous kind of reasoning which sets ourselves up as the standard of truth. Well, Descartes wasn't the first one to do it. Many have throughout history, and we're going to see tonight that there was a chapter in the life of Solomon when he was given to this kind of thinking. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to be looking this evening at verses 12 to 18, but just by way of review and how that previous text that we've studied fits into what we'll study today, let's remember how we've arrived where we are today at chapter 1 verse 12. We've noticed, first of all, that the book of Ecclesiastes starts off with a title. Verse 1 is a title to the book. It's essentially the identification of the writer, and we entitled that study, The Wisest of Fools. Solomon, 
being the man who was the wisest the world has known, is at the same time the head of a class called the class of fools. And his life shows the consequences of being in that class. And that he is ultimately not the one who is the solution to our problems, but he points to that one, to that one that he points to at the end of his book in chapter 12, that great shepherd. We also looked in our previous study in Ecclesiastes at verses 2 through 11, and we noticed there that it's the prologue of this book in which Solomon sets forth some of the key ideas that will only be resolved once you get to the very end of the book in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. But he began with that emphasis in verse 2 that all is vanity, hebel, and We define that term as a term that refers to vapor. Everything is a vapor. Everything, especially related to humanity, to all of our endeavors, everything is a vapor. Solomon then goes on to, after after asserting the, the transience of life, he goes on to illustrate that transience by comparing man's life to creation and then to defending his assertion in the final verses of that paragraph. He reminds us that we all will die and that we all will be forgotten. And that is important for us as men to realize. In fact, just hearing some of the discussions this past week, both in the media and in others, other conversations, it is so important for us as, as men to actually think much about death. It is what creates courage. It is what creates a right response to the problems we're facing in the world. Well, that was Solomon's focus in that prologue to emphasize the transitory nature of our lives. But now, beginning in verse 12 and in a section that will continue all the way to the end of chapter 2, Solomon begins an autobiography. He narrates the story of his own life as he tried to come to terms with the fact that life is a vapor. If life is so short, if our lives are so unstable that we can be here tonight and be gone tomorrow, if our life is literally that vapor that evaporates in the morning sun, if that is a right assessment of our lives, then we have to search for significance somewhere in that brevity. And where will we find it? Well, Solomon tried to come to terms with that reality, that he doesn't live forever. He doesn't get second chance and third chance and fourth chance. He doesn't circle his life like the sun around the earth. He has one life to live, and it is brief. So where is significance? Where do we find it? And beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, we find that Solomon looked in some areas and approached the issue with some unsound ways. And these are important for us. They are inscribed in the pages of Scripture for us to study and to learn from, particularly here as we will do this evening, to learn from Solomon's mistakes. Significance must be found somewhere in this brief transient life But everyone agrees with that. The issue is, where do we find that significance and how? As one writer said as he introduced his comments on the section we will study tonight, he said this, the preacher really thought that the answer to his deep-seated unrest might be found in education. Surely the wisdom of the ages and the wonders of science hold the key to life. What we'll see this evening is that Solomon, and naturally so, being the one with all the intellectual resources that he had, the the first attempt, the first foray that Solomon makes to try to, to find significance in this transient life is to go the way of the intellect, to go the way of wisdom and knowledge but in a particular manner that he will find in the end to not give hope. 
let's look at the text. It's made up of two paragraphs. And as we're going to see, these paragraphs parallel each other in essentially giving us four ingredients, four components. We're going to work through each of the four. But let me first read these paragraphs. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. The first paragraph reads as follows. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity. There's our word, hebel. All is a a vapor and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after the wind. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Now, as we look at these two paragraphs, we're going to notice, first of all, that Solomon provides some biographical information, some some details uh, about his life. And so we're going to call that, first of all, the, the, the pundit's credentials. We're going to see that. We'll, we'll notice it right at the beginning of both of these paragraphs in chapter 1, verse 12, and then again in chapter 1, verse 16, the pundit's credentials. Secondly, in both paragraphs, he then moves to what we're going to call the pundit's methodology. He explains in the first part of verse 13 and the first part of verse 17, he explains how he goes about his experiment, how he goes about using his intellect to try to solve the issue of the the transience of life. Thirdly, we're going to note what we call the, the pundit's observation as he employs this methodology of intellectual study as he attempts to solve the dilemma of life's transience by his mind, we're going to notice his observations. And those are found in in verse 13 and 14, and then paralleled again in verse 17. And then finally, he's going to end both of these paragraphs with a verdict. We'll call it the pundit's verdict. And both of the verdicts are actually proverbs. He utters proverbs, one in verse 15 and one in verse 18, that serve as the crystallization of what Solomon observed and concluded as he applied this particular methodology to the problem of life's brevity. Let's go through this one by one. First of all, the, the pundit's credentials, verses 12 and 16. 12 and 16. The pundit's credentials. Notice how he describes himself in verse 12. He said, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say in verse 16 at the start of the second paragraph, I said to myself, behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Solomon begins now for the first time in this book with references to himself. He begins using the pronouns I and me, and this is going to be very important as we get to the next point in particular But it's important to note that after he has introduced his book and given those introductory assertions, he now begins telling the story. Solomon here, by his reference to being a ruler, a king, references the fact that as a king, he had great access to financial and political and intellectual resources that enabled him to be the specialist in this area. In fact, we could say this, as we look at Solomon's financial wealth, 
his political standing in the world at that time, and then as we also consider how the Lord blessed him with wisdom, Solomon was the perfect one to go through this study and come to the conclusions that he did in the wrong way. And we're going to see that. One writer said this about Solomon's credentials for this investigation. Walter Kaiser says, The king not only had the gift of wisdom, but he also had a wide and extensive view of all that is done under heaven, especially in light of having access to the international trade routes and his concourse with the peoples that came from distant lands as well. Solomon was known for inviting the sages and the authorities of other civilizations, other peoples, other nations around him to come to him, and they themselves heard of Solomon's great fame. Authorities such as the Queen of Sheba comes to to Solomon to inquire of his wisdom. This was a time of great national wealth for the nation of Israel as well, bringing in all kinds of travelers to Jerusalem. Solomon was ideally situated as an expert in these matters. We read, for example, in 1 Kings 3.12, we read of Yahweh's blessing of Solomon as a young man who acknowledges at the beginning of his rule his need for discernment in ruling over the people of God. And we read these words in chapter 3, verse 12 of 1 Kings. Behold, I, that is Yahweh, have given you, Solomon, a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. We read in chapter 4 of 1 Kings, in 29 to 34, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east, and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. In chapter 10, verses 23 to 24 of First Kings, we read this, King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God has put in his heart. As Kaiser goes on to say, if any man could unlock the mysteries in this topic, the topic of the brevity of life, it would be someone such as this famed wise man from Jerusalem, to whom God had given such a wonderful gift of wisdom. Yet as we're going to see, Solomon, in this endeavor, as he seeks to find significance in light of the brevity of life, does not become the exemplary hero. And that is uncovered more in the next point, Solomon's, or the pundit's, methodology. The pundit's methodology. And this we find in in the opening verses of of the, the first paragraph as well as the second paragraph. In the first part of verse 13 and the first part of verse 17. Notice how Solomon describes his methodology as he seeks to find significance in light of the brevity of life. In verse 13 he says this, "...and I set my mind..." to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Verse 17, the first part, And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So as Solomon is confronted 
with the fact that life is unstable. You have no guarantees that in relation to the creation around you, your life is but a vapor. Solomon sought to find significance in light of that. He describes it here, but there is something very important that we'll note about his methodology. But let's look at the terminology first and foremost. These parallel statements in verse 13 and 17 give us insight into what we could call Solomon's epistemology. How he studies the nature and the source and the scope of knowing things. Just like Descartes in the oven, in this moment in Solomon's life, he seeks to find certainty. He seeks to find something that will give him significance upon which he can order the rest of his life. He says, I set my mind. Literally, that phrase means, I devoted my heart. But when we look at the Hebrew use of the term heart, it's not a reference to emotions and intuition. Instead, the heart is the very seat of judgment and rationality. In biblical Hebrew, the heart is mission control center. We could say that for the Hebrew mind, the heart is the center of personal consciousness. And this is what Solomon dedicated to the study of the problem in search of a solution. He uses three verbs to further define this methodology. He says, I set my mind, number one, to seek. And that verb indicates the intense, intricate extent of this. He is going down to the roots of the matter. Secondly, we notice in verse 13 that he had dedicated his heart to explore. This has the idea of breadth. He looks at it on all sides, from every angle. He considers all the possibilities. And then in verse 17, he said he set his heart to know. And that verb indicates the idea of knowing by experience. He wanted to use his senses and understand and interpret all of that sensory data in order to come up with the certainty he needs to build a life of significance. He says that he did this by the instrumentality of wisdom, verse 13, by wisdom, indicating that this was very much a philosophical quest. Philosophy is that term that is made up of the two Greek words, the word philia meaning love, and the the term sophia meaning wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. It's the the, the application of so-called wisdom, and that's exactly what Solomon is using in the effort to solve the dilemma. He also describes the scope of this inquiry. He says in, in verse 13 that he examined all that is done under heaven, referring to this exhaustive study. We already read from 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon knew all kinds of things about plants and animals. And he spoke Proverbs and he knew music and he knew poetry. He interacted with the sages of all the nations around him. Undoubtedly had scribes and interpreters constantly bringing to him the greatest works of wisdom from the east and from the south and from the west. He sought to examine all that was done under heaven. And he also says in verse 17 that he sought to observe both wisdom and madness and folly. There in verse 17 indicating that he was open to all opinions. He was open to all perspectives. He did not just consult with the sages. He also went out and and asked the madmen. He also sought to find some kernel of truth even among those who had lost their minds. This was a an extensive study that he conducted in order to find significance in light of the brevity of life. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes it this way. 
about Solomon's endeavor. His assumption was this. Ignorance is our greatest enemy. If only we can increase knowledge and understanding, we will begin to solve more of the problems that curse our lives and our world and will make it so much and, and what makes it so meaningless. Let me read that again. If we can only increase knowledge and understanding, we will begin to solve more of the problems that curse our lives and our world and make so much of it seem meaningless. Now that was Solomon's effort. But as I said, there are two very important things to notice about this section in Ecclesiastes. Look back at the text, verses 12 to 18. And there's one thing that's important to recognize, first of all here. First, there is an excessive, emphatic use of terminology that relates to cognition. To, you have all these nouns that relate to knowing. Words like knowledge and wisdom. They are abundant in this text. You also have all the different verbs that are here that are verbs of cognition to seek, to explore, to see, to say, to know, to realize. These are all words of cognition. We can see very clearly that Solomon is focused on the mind. But there's something else to see in this text, something to observe by how frequent it appears, and that is the use of the first-person singular pronoun. I, I, my, I, I, myself, I, me, my, I, my, I. There is an emphasis in this text that is intentional to indicate that the starting point for Solomon's endeavor was himself. The fatal flaw that led Solomon in this particular moment of his life to look upon the state of affairs, to look upon his own life as a grievous thing, is that he, at this point, he attempts to solve the problem through autonomous thinking. Reasoning, just as Descartes does, reasoning from the self as the starting point. I, me, my, myself. When we talk about autonomous thinking, we can define it this way. Autonomous thinking is this, quote, the belief that the individual can and should proceed toward truth by means of his own powers of perception and reason, and that he can do this in a way to discover truths previously unknown. It's all about the self and self-consciousness as the starting point. Now, that's one of the two things that we must draw from this particular section, that which is emphasized by repetition. But there is also an emphasis here by means of absence in this very important introduction into his book, as he begins to deal with the brevity of life, there is one very important ingredient missing, and it should catch us. And that important ingredient, that basic, most fundamental component to any intellectual enterprise is the fear of the Lord. Notice it is not here in the text. Now, if we would go to the book of Proverbs, it comes at the very beginning. In the opening of Proverbs, Solomon emphasizes there in Proverbs 1 verse 7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then throughout the book of Proverbs, you have this repeated reference to the fear of the Lord being the foundation. It's repeated, for example, in chapter 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
Now, for Proverbs, this was the foundation. And what we mean by beginning is not that it is the first step that you, can, you go on a journey and you leave it behind as you move forward, but rather beginning should be understood as foundation. It's like the first step of a ladder. You can't remove it without everything toppling down. Solomon emphasized that in Proverbs. In his, probably in his earlier years, he understood that this fearful reverence of God, that this was foundational in any kind of intellectual activity. But when we get to this particular paragraph, this opening section of Solomon's autobiography, we don't read anything about fear. Now you might say, well, that's just, a, uh, that, that's, that's just coincidence. But as we will continue in this book, you will find that Solomon will come to this theme of the fear of God, and it becomes the solution to the problem of life's brevity. Turn for just a moment to the end. To the very end of the matter, which we will get to eventually, but we see here a totally different way of dealing with the dilemma as Solomon brings his book to a close, and, and by the way, before he even gets to the end of the matter, he will mention the fear of the Lord numerous times in Ecclesiastes, but he says this at the very end. He says, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is this, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. That ingredient was missing in his earlier description. In his initial autobiography, it is that element which is missing. And and what we find here then is this emphasis on I and myself and my existence as the starting point for trying to solve the problem of life's transient nature. One writer says this, autonomy always assumes some neutral capacity within humankind by means of which truth can be arrived of apart from God. That was Rene Descartes' problem. It's also Solomon's problem in chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. He recognized the dilemma. But he failed to realize at that moment that the only way he could make sense of it and deal with the problem of things like aging and illness and death and calamity, the only way that he could make sense of that was through the prism of the fear of God. One writer has also put it this way, particularly as it relates to philosophers and those who are are into the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. He said this, the occupational hazard of the wise man is to walk by calculation rather than faith. And that is what Solomon was doing at this moment. His focus was on everything under the sun. He himself was the starting point for gauging all that was true and certain. And let me just say this, as all of us deal with the problems of living outside the garden, the reality of the brevity of life, the consequences of sin on our world and on our own lives, it is so easy to diagnose the problem and to propose the solution operating according to the self. It is what explains so many of our personal problems. We walk by our own calculations and not by reverent, faithful fear. Now, as Solomon did this, let's notice his observations. As he applies his methodology with his own self as the starting point, what did he observe? And we find this in parallel sections as well. In the end of verse 13 into 14 and verse 17, He says this in the first paragraph. He says, It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. 
I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. He repeats that same idea in verse 17 when he says, I realized that this also is striving after the wind. Solomon describes here the end result, the guaranteed end of any who want to try to solve this dilemma using self as the starting point. It is the despair that comes. Solomon, he does acknowledge here for a brief moment an important truth. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Notice what he says. He says it is a grievous task which God has given. He rightly recognizes that in all of this, God remains sovereign. He doesn't attribute this to the random impact of Adam's this is not fatalism. Solomon does recognize that this is, is something that has come from God's hand. And yet, apart from a proper fear and reverence, the sovereignty of God and acknowledging the sovereignty of God in that kind of a situation is a bitter pill to swallow. In fact, you can always know this, that those who are having a hard time with this doctrine of sovereignty, maybe even they affirm it, but they don't like it. It's because of the absence of that reverential faith. Solomon acknowledges that God is sovereign, and he acknowledges what we could say is an underappreciated reality of God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign even over the issues of death and illness and calamity, that it is God who is the one who administers the curse on His creation. You can even go to a text like Romans chapter 8, verse 20, which says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. A reference back to Genesis chapter 3 and God pronouncing the curse on His own creation and pronouncing a curse on all of Adam's descendants. God is sovereign in all of that. And Solomon recognizes that in the calamities that he sees, in the reality that life is but a vapor, that is not an accident. That has an explanation and it comes from the hand of God. Solomon says that this existence then is a grievous task. Living in a groaning creation is a grievous task. The idea of task has the idea of a business or an occupation, and Solomon speaks of it in negative terms, describing it as burdensome. Man has been given an unhappy, a a difficult task, a a sore travail, as as one described it. He's going to go on and speak of this again in Ecclesiastes in chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, when he says this, I have seen the task, the, the occupation that God has given to the sons of men with which they are to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. The struggle of having in our hearts that awareness that eternity is real, and yet my life is short. That the things around me in creation will outlive me. This is the task, this is the duty to live under that in the appropriate way. This is the duty that God has given to the sons of men. But as Solomon looked at it in chapter 1, apart from that reverential fear, it was to him something grievous. William Barrick summarizes Solomon's sentiment with these words, deep within each human being. God implants the urge to seek truth. As sinful human beings, however, the desired result is fraught with frustration and failure. Without God, the quest for truth and eternity is 
fruitless. Solomon's experience here acknowledges the end of the journey for all who pursue wisdom merely for wisdom's sake. He says, he looked at these things and behold, all of it was vanity. If you try to solve these dilemmas in life and all of your focus is on the world below the sun, the world below heaven, and you yourself are the standard, the starting point, Solomon says all of it then leads to this common end. It is vanity. It is that breath, that vapor. He calls it a striving after the wind. He calls it, he likens it to the idea of trying to shepherd wind. Trying to corral wind as it blows. It's impossible. Wisdom for wisdom's sake is not the solution. And having undoubtedly interviewed countless sages reading all the great works of wisdom, going through all those different syllogisms, Solomon is brought to this conclusion. It is all an evaporating vapor. And Solomon here admits his failure. We won't get into it. We could read some texts. I have one in the slides. We won't go over it. But what Solomon does here is unique because in those days, kings would never acknowledge their failures. And what we find with Solomon is an important ingredient that will lead to the right final conclusion. We see his humbling. We see that he is humble. He admits his failures, his inabilities, Other kings of the days in his time would do nothing of the sort. Let's now look at the verdict as we wrap up our study. It's found in verses 15 and verse 18. Two Proverbs crystallize Solomon's observations. uh, These two Proverbs put into a memorable statement what Solomon has observed as he has sought to solve the dilemma of the brevity of life using himself as the standard and looking at it exclusively from the perspective of one under heaven. He says, first of all, what is crooked cannot be straightened and what is lacking cannot be counted. When he refers to what is crooked, he's not referring in this particular case to that which is morally corrupt. Instead, what he's referring to is a burdensome circumstance, this grievous task that he has described already in verse 13. He says that what has been put in place for the sons of men by a sovereign God as he submits them to the realities of the curse in this world, it cannot be straightened. And the assumption there is by human wisdom. It cannot be straightened by the exercise of education and intellectual pursuits. He says that which is lacking cannot be counted. He's admitting the fact there that under the sun, in this cursed world, there, are, there is information that is lacking. There are enigmas. There are mysteries. We don't have those answers. For example, we don't know why one dies at the age of six and another at the age of 96. We don't have the solutions. We don't know why some live their lives in in complete health until they die of a heart attack and others are plagued by illness upon illness upon illness. We don't have information. Solomon came to terms with that and said, what is lacking cannot be counted. In verse 18 there, the proverb emphasizes the, 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 the ratio here of gaining knowledge and gaining wisdom from a human autonomous perspective, and that the more that you do that, the only result is the same amount, increasing amount of pain and grief. What's he essentially saying? It's this. Let me summarize it this way. Man, you cannot erase the curse. You cannot apply solutions that God hasn't provided. You, you, you can try all you like 
but you will always end in despair. No matter how much you learn, no matter how hard you try to think of it, you cannot erase the curse. You cannot apply solutions to your life right now that God has not provided. It will not get you out of the reality of life's brevity. Moreover, if you avoid Him, even your best intellectual efforts will only compound the problem. If you avoid Him and avoid that fear that is so necessary, you will only increase the pain. One writer put it this way, the fundamental human problem resides in a lack of harmony between common human aspirations and the very nature of reality itself. And the futility of of, of human refusal to accept things the way they are. There is a human insistence that the impossible can in fact be achieved. That what God has made crooked or twisted can indeed be made straight by human mortal effort. Refusing to accept reality can only result in unhappiness and weariness. Just look at those who are investing in technology today to try and keep them alive. All the different artificial intelligence applications to try somehow to keep their consciousness alive on this earth. And if the price for all of these special drugs and special technology was lower, society in mass would be investing to try to avoid death. Solomon's solution, as we will see in this book, is not to try to make straight what is crooked, but rather to fear God in the midst of that brevity. Charles Bridges said, the soul that has wandered from God will search heaven and earth in vain for rest. So when we hear the words of the preacher, these goads, how do we respond? Let me quickly close with four admonitions. First, forsake. Forsake, renounce all efforts to find significance for your life by your own strength. Everyone is on a pursuit for significance. Everyone's looking for it. Some look in different places. Here, Solomon looked through the the efforts at education and intellect. As we're going to read further in chapter 2, he's also going to try pleasure. He's going to try wealth. He's going to try great efforts to build and to work, and, and, and through that silence, that gnawing reality of the brevity of life. But here in this text, we find Solomon trying to, to, to solve the problem and find significance by his own strength. Renounce that. Renounce that. Number two, submit. Humble yourself before a sovereign God and admit this reality. He owes you nothing. Now, those are hard words. We don't really even like hearing them, that God owes us nothing. What? Wait, wait a minute. But it's true. We read it from cover to cover. God owes us nothing. And that's the, the, the conclusion that Solomon realized in his humility, that God has given us this task. And the, the right response is to submit to that reality, not to rebel. But how many men rebel against that reality? Number three, fear. Direct, reverential faith toward the one who alone gives significance to your life. Solomon is going to get there. He's a long-winded preacher. It's not found directly in this particular section, but he does get there. 
And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. He's going to get there. You you must fear God. And the fear that he's referring to is this reverential faith, this faith of submission, this realization that I have nothing in my hands. There's nothing that I can contribute to my own significance. Nothing that I can contribute to the resolution of this dilemma. I must throw myself wholly upon the one who has all the significance. Fear. Number four, depend. Depend. As Solomon said at the end, we are to fear God and we are also to keep His commandments. That's the solution to the reality of life's brevity. And so we must learn to live by the Word that He has provided. We cannot try to count those things that, that are lacking. We cannot try to find solutions that God has not given We cannot busy ourselves as Solomon did trying to find solutions to life's most greatest problems by looking to this world or to ourself and ignoring what God has said and where He is silent. And where He is silent, we must entrust it to the hands of a sovereign and good God. But where He has spoken, that is to be our business. That is our task. To live according to that Word. Let's pray, men, that this text would would root out a lot of autonomous thinking in our lives and compel us to a fully dependent, submissive, fearful, and faithful approach to the Great Shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we immediately recognize that Solomon is not alone in his humble failings. That all of us have followed that path. All of us have operated by using our own self-consciousness as a starting point and a standard to try to solve our problems. Father, we pray that this testimony from Solomon as he recounts these humiliating times of his life that they would reveal in our own hearts the similar thinking that still lurks. It would expose that. It would reveal it to be the kind of futility that it is and empower us then by Your grace to mortify that, to forsake that, and instead come to You in humility and submission, recognizing that You are the significant One and that our lives have meaning and purpose only as they are submitted fully to You as You have revealed Yourself to be and only as You have revealed our lives to be. Do that work in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.